kind of define this by saying that while kindness can only help, goodness can also rebuke and discipline. Bit of a distinction we see there. Does that make sense? Perfect. Uh, now, parents... We know this, right? We don't have to have a child very long as they grow up over a couple years. We know this because we want both of our kids to be good and kind, but it seems like we are forever telling them to be good. That's the one we tend to always be over and over again telling them to be good. And if you listen to a parent talk to their child and use that phrase, be good, the way they use it actually reveals an awful lot about that child. I'll give you a couple of examples. For example, if you hear a parent say to their, their, their son as he walks out the door, hey, be good, sort of casual, calm, kind of be good, it's almost like it's this reminder. It gives you this sense that, you know, that's a pretty good kid. Doesn't get into too much trouble. Like, like the worst John he ever does is sometimes he doesn't finish all of his peas and carrots. That's about as bad as it gets. And so it's just sort of the casual, hey, be good. But then you get the parents who are more of like a... Be good? Could you, could you be good? It's, it's like a question. It's more like a plea in a way. We're, we're offering them encouragement to be good. Like, like we know that they know the difference between right and wrong, but man, there's just that lure towards the bad that they are prone to, and they need that reminder to, to be good. And so we're asking them, kind of, could, could you just kind of keep it in mind while you're out there, just be good? And then there's the third type, where it's sort of a, be good! <laughs> Did anybody know these types of kids? Not, not your own kids, obviously, but somebody else's kids who, who need that sort of stern, that, 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 that desperate directive that comes from the parents about, be good! It sort of comes from this preconceived notion that you already know what's about to happen. That little Dennis the Menace or little Debbie Defiant just has that look in her eye, and you know immediately supervision is required for this child. At all times. Now, Nadine and I have been blessed with one of each of these three. So I won't tell you which one is which, uh, and the kids are probably watching online and they can fight it out amongst themselves as to who is which one. But we have one of each of these three. Now, the dynamics of how this be good idea is used is also present in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, or perhaps if you're curious about him, or maybe a little bit skeptical of him, this still follows suit. Because what we believe about God has this impact on how we relate to him. And based on how we relate to him, we'll determine what we hear and what we understand if we imagine God saying to us, be good. For example, if we hear that phrase from, from God saying, be good, in a sort of a casual sense, we might think to ourselves, well, I'm a good person. You know, God's got bigger things to worry about. He's got bigger fish to fry than me. And, you know, I, I may occasionally be a little bit selfish. I, I may occasionally, you know, cheat on my tax deductions a little bit. But come on, who doesn't? And compared to everybody else in the world, compared to other people that I know, I'm pretty good. So this be good is sort of a, a casual suggestion in my case. But then there's the other uh, person who may look at this and think that God's statement of be good is kind of optional. They think to themselves, well, I know the Ten Commandments, and, and I know Jesus is teaching, and, and I believe that, yes, that is the best model by which I can live my life. I, I'm, I, I fully believe that. And I apply all of those to my life, you know, when I can. I, I apply them all to my life when, when I remember. 
you know, when it doesn't cramp my style, I, I apply all of those to my life. It's kind of this optional suggestion. And then there are those people who, who have this idea and concept of God that when they hear him say, be good, it's that sternness, kind of that angry God kind of idea where, where God is good and I am not. And he is just waiting for me to give him an excuse to step in and like smite me. It's, it's this view of, of a God who is distant and, and this wrathful deity who is just waiting for you to mess up so he can punish you. What do you hear when you think of this phrase, be good? When you, when you imagine God perhaps saying to you, be good? What do you hear and think of when you hear the phrase, God is good? See, based upon our view of God, we'll determine how we relate to him. And, and based upon how we relate to him, we'll have a big impact on whether we will live for him or not. So I want to offer you a definition today. A definition that we can use throughout the rest of this message today on how to understand goodness. And the definition is this. That goodness isn't just about the doing the right thing. Goodness is also about making things right. See, goodness isn't just about doing the right things. Goodness is also about making things right. Now, does that mean the rules don't matter? Uh, do they matter? Do God's commands, are they still relevant? Yes, absolutely they are. Does it mean that we can bend these rules to kind of fit our desires and our will? Does it mean that God hands out bonus points for the creative application of his wills? No, it doesn't. God's rules still matter. His commands are still relevant. And all of this is important. We can't put that aside in light of another definition of goodness. All of that is important. But what I want you to understand today as we go through this message is that there's also a bigger narrative than that. Is that goodness is not just about doing the right things. It's part of it. But it's not just about doing the right things. It's also about making things right. And a story I want to start with that helps us understand this today is found in the book of John. John chapter 8 verse 1. It's a story of a woman who made some bad decisions. And, and no one denies that throughout the whole story. And because of these bad decisions, her very life hangs in the balance between two perspectives of what it means to say God is good. Now, when this woman had gone out the door the night before, if somebody had said to her, be good tonight, maybe it would have made a difference. We, we don't know because the first time we encounter her, it's the next morning. And she is crying. She is terrified. And she finds herself standing in front of a judge. We don't really know too much about this woman, but we do know one thing that's very important. We know that she's engaged to be married. And we know that she has been caught in a compromising situation with another man that she is not engaged to. And, and without going into all the details, they're having this private moment together. And then suddenly a group of men rushed into the room. Her lover rushed out of the room. And as she scrambles to put herself back together, they grab her. They drag her out of the room and they drag her down the street by the arm saying, you're going to get what's coming to you and all sorts of names thrown in for good measure until she finds herself standing before Jesus, who in this case is acting as the judge. She stands there and shame overwhelms her. Not just because of the guilt of, of her knowing what she's done. But because the eyes of the crowd all around here are, are just piercing her as the serious accusation is suddenly levied against her. 
and we read in verse 3. It says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought this woman who was caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Now these lawyers, these experts in the law, they're bringing a very clear legal claim against this woman. And they know the law. They know that this woman has been caught in adultery, and the law is very, very clear. If you're caught in adultery, the punishment is that you are to be stoned to death. They possess the evidence. What is the evidence? Well, something like this required the eyewitness account of two or more people. Two or more people who, who saw the same thing at the same time and have the same story. And thirdly, they found a judge. They've got the law on their side. They've got the evidence on their side. And they've got a judge who they hope and anticipate will be on their side. In this case, that being a rabbi, and when it comes to the law of, of the people, the, the law of God that they're trying to refer to here, a rabbi is permitted to make decisions in these sorts of matters and deliver a sentence. But before we go any further, is it just me, or even just a couple verses into this passage, does something already kind of smell a little fishy about this situation? Like, it almost seems like there's more to the story than, than these guys are sharing. Like, for example, what is the likelihood of two Pharisees walking down the street, happening to come by a couple who is in a private embrace. And besides, how do they know that they weren't married? And, and here's a question that doesn't get asked very often. What are they doing looking in windows in the first place? Like, like there's got to be a law against that, against peeking in windows at such things. So we think something might be up that's not being shared in the story. And sure enough, the next verse confirms the suspicions we have that there's more going on here. There's more taking place than we're told. In verse 6, it says they were using this question, really they're using this whole situation in order to trap Jesus. As a, as a way to use a basis for accusing Jesus. So how is this a trap? Well, they believe that they've manufactured a situation here where Jesus is stuck between three different worlds. You see, number one, there's the world of the Romans, who are ruling over the region at this particular time. And, and, and by Roman law, Jews were not permitted to carry out death sentences. And so if he says this woman deserves to die and they move towards taking her life, he's in trouble with the Romans, which is fine by the Pharisees. If he accuses this woman and condemns her, he's in trouble with the people. Because the, so far in Jesus' ministry, they have come to know him as this demonstration of love and grace in condemning this woman. He stands to lose a lot of reputation with the people, which again is perfectly fine by the Pharisees. And then thirdly, there's the world of God's law. Because she's guilty. And the law is not in question here. That never gets questioned. And if he releases her, well, then he's not supportive of God's law, and they're fine with that too, because they can bring charges against him for that. So they believe that they have manufactured a situation here where Jesus is in trouble, and he is going to upset somebody somehow by whatever he says next. So what does he do next? He bends down to the ground, and he starts writing. He starts writing in the dirt. Maybe he's buying himself some time to figure out how he's going to respond. Probably not. This is probably a more intentional process or a more intentional action than just that. 
Now, some people think, and you've probably heard this before, that, that when he bent down and started writing in the ground, that, that he was writing down the accuser's sins. Have you heard that before? It's probably, it's, it's a common thing people have heard before, is that he bent down and starts writing what their sins were in the ground. Now, that's popular, and it preaches really good, but, but that's not actually what scholars predominantly think was going on. You see, what is thought by scholars to be happening here is as he bends down and starts writing in the ground, he's actually writing down words from the very law which they are trying to trap him with. Words, for example, like Exodus 23 where it says, do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Seems relevant to the situation here. And, and while he's bending down doing this, and that sort of a verse would cast guilt upon these accusers, it would also posit the position that Jesus is about to take in this situation. Now the delay in him casting sentence and writing makes them uncomfortable, so they demand an answer, to which time Jesus stands up and offers a famous verse, a famous verse that maybe you've heard, maybe you've used, or somebody's even used it towards you in the past. And he says in verse 7, let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bends down and starts writing on the ground again. Let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. This is also from the law that they're bringing towards Jesus. In Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 17, it talks about how when a witness brings an accusation against another person that would require a death sentence, if they are successful in that accusation, if they're successful in that charge, they are the ones who must throw the first stone. Now, perhaps you've had this quoted to you in the past, and, or you've, you've seen it, but it's quite often actually used incorrectly. You see, what they're saying here is not that whoever has ever committed a sin or must, cannot throw a stone. Because if that was the case, if it's saying if you, have, if you have ever committed a sin, if that's what it was referring to, then none of us could ever accuse or punish anyone for anything. Why? Well, because we've all sinned. But here's what it's saying. You see, the law required a witness to be innocent in the matter at hand. These guys were not innocent in the matter at hand. It says if you are going to bring an accusation of a death sentence against a person, and you are successful in bringing that accusation, if your hand is innocent, if you are clean of this person's blood, you can throw that first stone. These guys are the leaders of the nation. They were the ones who were supposed to bring the nation in worship before God. They were to be living examples of God's love and goodness to the people, but they were not innocent in this situation. They had failed to uphold justice for this woman. You see, they only brought her before Jesus. You ever wonder where her lover is? Oh, right, he was in on it. He's their buddy. He ran out the doors, they ran in. There's no justice in that. They lacked mercy. The law also says that if you see somebody about to sin, you have a responsibility to step in, to call them out on it, to stop them from doing it. They set this whole thing up. They're not innocent in this case. The law says that we need to walk humbly with our God. That means to place our hand in his and follow his will above our own. This was all them. This was all their will and their objectives that they wanted to achieve. And so unable to stand innocently before Jesus and this woman and cast that first stone, one by one, they just start walking away. Until it reached the point where the crowd leaves too. And it's just the two of them left. 
just Jesus and this woman who was silently standing there throughout this whole episode except for her nervous weeping because she's guilty. And the law is clear. And he is a rabbi who must uphold the law. So why is she still alive? Well, once they're alone, Jesus stands up again. And he looks around and sees nobody except her. And he looks her in the eye and he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she surprisingly to herself says, no one, sir. And then Jesus says his final words to her that reveal a deeper understanding of God's goodness. He says, and neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. You see, the Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus under the premise, God is good. His goodness demands justice. God is good. His goodness demands justice. And since the law is clear, Jesus either agrees with them or he ignores these transgressions and will violate the law. But here's what they didn't understand. That there's a bigger story when we talk about God's goodness. You see, Jesus never claimed this woman was innocent. Jesus never declared her not guilty. But what did he declare her? He declared her forgiven. See, Jesus did not just point this woman towards the right path so that she could be good. He also sought to make her good. He sought to make things right because this whole situation was all sorts of wrong. See, goodness isn't just about doing the right thing. It's also about making things right. Here's the reality. If it was just about doing the right things, then, then just about obeying the rules and the laws, then... You know, it's possible that we could work towards being good. Or even just saying, at least I could be good enough, right? And this is a common belief that exists within society, that exists within most major religions. Is this idea that if I, if I do more good than bad, then I can earn my way into righteousness. That means I can earn my way towards a right position, a right relationship with God. And, and I know there's another destination, another option, like... It, you know, hell, but, but come on, hell's only for really bad people, right? Like, like people who abuse kids and, and commit genocide and mass murder. That, that's who goes to hell, not me. You and me? No, 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 no. Uh, compared to them, compared to those guys, I'm a good person. And when that's the worldview, when that's the, the mentality in which we present ourselves and we process this idea of God is good... If we're a secular person, then this idea of good is based upon secular moralism. This idea that you can be good without God. You know, and society collectively as a whole will define what good is and what bad is and what the punishments related to that are. Secular moralism. If it's a religious person who comes to this sort of a, an understanding, then they'll turn to their sacred texts. And those texts will determine, help guide them towards ethics and morality and how to earn their way towards God's favor. Remember what I said a few moments ago, your view of God determines how you relate to him, and how you relate to him will determine how you define goodness. Christianity says something different. Jesus' example says something different. 
it says that the whole starting premise of that is faulty. That as hard as it is maybe for us to hear and understand, we are not able to earn our way ever to be good enough. That doesn't mean people aren't capable of doing good. The world is full of people who, who do not know or do not believe in God, who do good things, who, who are making a fantastic difference in the world. And that's great. And, and, and I encourage people of all faiths and traditions to continue to do good, to make a difference in the world. But let's not claim that those actions change anything between us and God. That's a totally different conversation. See, humans have this amazing ability to, to kind of rebel against God. And, and, and once they realize, they go, oops, I did it again. Right? And, then, and then they just sort of think, well, it's no big deal. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just make a donation. Or I'll, I'll go serve a little bit more tomorrow and I'll feel better about it. Or, or you know that bad thing I did? I'll offset it with one. No, no, two. No, no, offset it with three good things and I'll tip the scales in my favor. It'll be all right. But the Bible says this. The Bible says every sin is a big deal in the eyes of God. Why? Because he is holy. Because he is perfectly righteous. Because he is perfectly pure. Now when we compare ourselves to other people, we, we find ourselves going, yeah, no, I'm, I'm better than them and I'm pretty close to them. And he averaged it out. I'm okay. When we compare our sins to other people's sins that we know about, we go, you know, yeah, you know, you know, maybe a smidge worse than them, but oh man, compared to them, phew, I'm an angel, I'm a saint compared to them. And again, we average it out and we go, you know, I'm not too bad. Averaged out, it's okay. But that's the faulty premise. You see, the, the measurement, the standard being used here is not us versus other people. It's not our sins versus other people's sins. If that was the standard of measurement, we could average it out and not feel too bad about ourselves. But the standard is not other people or other people's sins. See, the standard that's being used to measure this is found in Matthew 19, 17 that says there is only one who is good. That is God. There is only one who is the standard. And that's the measurement. That's why it says all of us fall short of God's glory. All of us have sinned and fall short. And because God is good, every sin matters. And there's consequences. Someone has to take the hit. Because every sin matters. This is what the Pharisees were counting on when they brought this woman before Jesus. But it's not the whole story. Why? Because God is good. And because God is good, he sent Jesus to take the hit for us. That when Jesus died upon the cross, all of our sin was transferred to him. He took the punishment. He died in our place. Why? Because God loves you and because God is good. 2 Corinthians 5.21 explains it this way. God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. See, Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher who came to help us be good and to make the right choices. He is our Savior. He is the one who came to make things right between us and God. And when we choose to respond to that incredible gift, when we choose to enter into this personal covenant between us and him, you are not declared innocent, but you are declared forgiven. And Jesus then says to you, go and leave your life of sin. 
see, Jesus never treats sin lightly. I think the evidence of the cross is, is enough for that. Jesus never treats sin lightly. He takes it serious enough that it cost him his life. So do not compromise the law of God. Do not compromise the law of God in your life. Jesus takes it very seriously. But the good news of his goodness is that sinners are always offered an opportunity to start a new life. Why? Because goodness isn't just about doing the right thing. It's also about making things right. That includes making you right. Now when this transformation happens, when we are declared forgiven, the Bible talks about how we become a holy temple, a, a place where God can then dwell. And, and he dwells with us as the Holy Spirit. And then when he dwells within us in the Spirit, we have these fruits of the Spirit we've been talking about throughout the summer. These are these anticipated products of a life lived with the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we've been going through these past few weeks, talking about one of these expressions of the fruit week by week, have you noticed that each of them we've talked about so far are positive and relational? You notice that? If you look at the ones that, that Paul describes in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, they're positive and they're relational. What's the significance of that? We well, see the fruit is meant to leave an impact. It's meant to make a difference, to impact other people and make a difference in the world. To enable all people who encounter followers of Jesus Christ that are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, to allow them to encounter what the psalmist says in Psalm 34. It says, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Now throughout redemptive history, people have been asking, what is my appropriate response to God's goodness to me? And the answer has been unchanging throughout Scripture. It's been expressed different ways, but the answer has been unchanging. And we first encounter a summary of this through the prophet Micah, who in Micah chapter 6 sort of rhetorically answers this question by first saying, well, well, maybe if we bow down before him, that would be an appropriate response. Maybe if I take a young calf and I, and I come and sacrifice that at the altar of the temple, that would be enough. Maybe if I take a thousand rams and sacrifice them. Maybe if I had rivers of oil that I could bring before him. What if I brought my firstborn son and offered it? Would that be the appropriate response? He rhetorically answers this question himself. And then he says, no, it wouldn't be. None of these good works would be the appropriate response. One response remains. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. That connects... God's goodness to us with our relational response towards others. And it says this, he has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, to ensure equality for all people, for, for all people groups. To make things right so that people have the opportunity to develop the God-given gifts and opportunities they have in their lives. This is at the core of God's heart, where God says a few times throughout Scripture, protect the foreigner, protect the slaves, the poor, the orphans, and the widows. 
in our present situation, we see these sorts of things, talk about foreigners and the poor and, 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 and orphans and widows. We, we hear these words and we think, yeah, that, that exists in the realm of politics. That, that's like our government officials oversee that. That's, that's economic and, and, and judicial challenges that exist. That's kind of a step removed from me. And, and, and yes and no. But here's what I want you to know about this. If you roll the clock back far enough, a couple generations, you will find that caring for the widows, for the orphans, for the poor, protecting these people was a responsibility that was looked after by the church. And for centuries, the church looked after that. And then for some reason, they stopped. And they created a gap between the care that these people needed and the government stepped in because the church stepped back. That's where we find ourselves today. And so, yes, these things exist at a political level, but they exist at a political level because the church stepped back from these things that are so central to the heart of God and acting justly in our world. I suggest it's a call for us to ask, how do we step back into that gap? It also says that we need to love mercy. Love mercy. Mercy here is this word, hesed, that speaks about the loving kindness of God that delivers people rather than punishing them for their misfortune. Now, when... When people require mercy from us because they've wronged us or offended us, this is not that easy to do. But in those moments where we're challenged to love mercy towards another person, we love it for ourselves. But when we're challenged to show it towards another person, I encourage you to follow the example of God. And hear God say to you, you are one of my people that is commanded to love mercy. Why? Because it's what you've received from me. And as you have been forgiven, so you must forgive others. And then thirdly, to walk humbly with your God. This word walk is commonly used throughout the Old Testament as, as, as a reference to the direction you're heading in life. And what are you heading towards? What are you following? And this idea of humbly walking means to humbly put your will aside in place of another. And so to humbly walk is to humbly follow the direction of God's will. To choose to say, my will may want this, my desires may want this, but I have heard and seen God lead me in this direction, and I will follow him humbly. I will walk with him as my God. Follow his will, not our own. And here's the cool thing. If we do that one, the other two, about mercy and justice, just seem to follow suit because they reflect God's heart and his will for people. Now, every day, if you keep these words in your mind, you will see a myriad of opportunities and examples of how you can act justly, of how you can love mercy, of where you can choose to walk humbly with your God. Some of them might be big opportunities, like, like you're going to go on a missions trip, or you're going to open an orphanage, you're going to adopt a bunch of kids. It could be all sorts of big things, but there's a high likelihood that's going to be made up by a whole lot of small things. Small, everyday examples everyday opportunities that in the moment themselves don't seem to be that significant or consequential. You may be surprised by the locations of them, but I encourage if you're walking humbly with your Lord that you will seize them. You will not gauge them by big or small. You will just say, I am humbly, obediently responding. Size is irrelevant of the impact from our perspective because from eternal perspective, God can do amazing things with a small seed of faithfulness. And you may be surprised when these sorts of things happen. I came across a story this week that I want to share with you before we close today. And, and it comes from the world of sports. And it's one of these examples of, of what it can look like
for justice and mercy and humility in light of obeying the rules and the laws, but also trying to make things right. And it's one of these surprising situations on a baseball diamond where it was lived out. And it's the story of a, uh, a college girls baseball team who are playing a game, and this one girl steps up to bat, and she hits the ball, first over-the-fence home run she's ever hit in her life. And so she proudly starts running. She turns first base, and she trips she falls, and she tears her knee up. She can't get up, yet alone run. And she's just sitting on the ground. Now, what's the rule? Even if you don't know baseball, I'll tell you the rules on this one. The rules are this. No coach or teammate of hers can step in and help her run the rest of the bases. The rule also says that you can bring in a pinch runner, but that pinch runner must stay on first base because that's as far as she made it which would turn her home run into a single. That's the rule. What are we going to do? We can't break the rules. We've got to abide by the rules. There's no other options. Except goodness is bigger than the rules. Because there's no rule against the other team, first baseman, coming over and helping her up. There's no rule about the other team's second baseman coming and taking the other shoulder and helping her to walk around the bases and touch every single base as she comes back to cross home plate, completing her home run. You see, there is no rule against assisting other people. That cost them something, cost them a run. Hopefully it didn't cost them the game. But it's this real world, everyday example. So simple. So in the moment of just the, uh, the routineness of these girls' lives, were they actually, even not, maybe even not knowing it, they showed justice, they showed mercy, and they put the needs of another ahead of themselves and walked humbly. I want to conclude today with just asking you, do you get a sense of what I mean when I talk about how goodness isn't just about doing the right thing, but it's about making things right? That's goodness. And in the final words, we're, we're this fruit of the Spirit comes from the book of Galatians, this letter Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. And as he starts to end his book, his letter to them, he, he offers them this encouragement that I want to leave with you today. He says this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not become weary of doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Don't become weary of doing good. You see, if we're trying to do this on our own strength, we will tire. If we're trying to do it on our own strength, we will get distracted and we'll kind of back off the mission for a while. If we have some trouble coming to our own lives, some stress coming to our own situations, we'll focus upon ourselves and we will tire of doing good. But remember, what we've been talking about throughout this series, that these fruits of the Spirit are not about us learning a discipline and mustering more internal strength, but it's about the miracle of God working through us. See, this is the difference between us just doing odd jobs here and there whenever we see fit or, or, or saying I have my one annual project I do. I used to know this girl who, who every Christmas she would take a $5 bill and she would drop it in one of the Christmas kettles for the Salvation Army. That was like the only good thing and charity-wise that she did all year, but she made sure she did that one and you should have seen the smile on her face for the week afterwards for that one thing. But then she would tire of it the rest of the year until Christmas came around 
You see, this isn't just about odd jobs and the occasional thing that we do. This is about living a lifestyle of wanting to do good to others, which is not possible under our own strength, but it is the miracle of God that he can work through us. And if we will honor God and and keep his commands and, and abide according to his will and his heart for others, then we will start to see this harvest, reaping this harvest of our good works. Because we'll be revealing the impact that his presence makes in your life. And that impact will be present towards others, which will lead to a harvest. Sometimes we don't see the harvest. Sometimes the harvest is done by somebody else. We plant the seed and we, and we tender it and we water it. And then somebody else gets the chance to actually reap the harvest. But our good deed leads to this harvest. And it's the opportunity for us to reveal not how good we are, but how good Jesus is. And the difference it makes to have him in our life, that we can live through word and deed, the truth that life is better with Jesus. As he said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify you? No. So that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I want to invite you if you would stand with me as we come to a time of prayer. And as you do, I just want to give you an opportunity to, to respond if, if there's a need for anyone on site or online with us right now. And I invite you just to bow your heads and contemplate what we've been talking about here. And, and if you find yourself where you have never said yes to Jesus, that you know you need to be made right with God because you have never accepted the gift of forgiveness from Jesus Christ, I want to give you the opportunity to now to do that. Jesus welcomes anybody who comes before him with a burden of sin and places that burden before him. He will not tell you you are innocent, but he will tell you you are forgiven. And he will say, go according to my will, live according to my ways, and sin no more. You will be forgiven, you will be set free from the burden, the shame, and the consequences of those sins. If, if somebody who is, who is on site or online has not accepted Christ, their personal Lord and Savior, I, I just ask you to acknowledge that right now and, and to, to shoot up a hand. If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ and, and you know, however, but as you look back upon your actions for the last few weeks or few days, you know you're not honoring God. You know his will. You know his ways. You know that he desires justice and mercy and for us to humble ourselves according to his will. And you know that has not been the story of my life lately. Maybe it's been hours, days, weeks, months, even years that you've honored God with your life. And you want to decide today to say, God, I acknowledge that you are good. And I need to confess that. I need your forgiveness for that. Do not allow that sin to go unaddressed. But to be made right with Jesus yet again. Do not try to offset that with good deeds on your own. Because there's only one deed that makes it right. And that is the deed accomplished through Jesus Christ. Who welcomes us to come back and confess these things to us today. So I'm going to pray. And if anybody would, would like to, to just think of these things as I pray, I invite you to confess these before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we just declare you are good. Your ways are good. That you show us the way to walk, that the way to live, that makes a difference in this world, the path that we can step on that will, that will not save us from all danger. It will not keep us from from all challenges and turmoil and conflict and issues, but Lord, it will show us how to navigate them. 
which shows how to avoid many of them, how to not cause a lot of them, and how to endure and get through all of them because you walk them with us as we follow you down that path humbly. Lord, for those who have never said yes to you in the past and in this moment right now, say yes, Jesus. Thank you for dying and paying the price for my sins. God, I pray that they would make themselves known to us through, through the chat or through contacting the office this week by phone or by email, that we could continue to walk with them into newness of life. God, for those who are, who are following you but, but have perhaps started to blaze their own trail for a period of time and have not honored your ways in certain areas of their lives. God, I pray that those people right now would confess that to you and would do the hard work. Let's not pretend it's easy. Do the hard work to get back in line with your will and your ways. God, would you bless them for it? Would you empower them for it? Would you give them the strength, the endurance, and the conviction they need to make that right choice? That we wouldn't just go and be good, but that we would be made good by you. And others would experience your goodness through us, that all honor, all praise, and all glory given to you.